Listen to challenging topics and insightful conversations. We don't just report the news. We provide the real story behind the headlines by talking to global decision makers and influential figures. This is The Agenda. This week on The Agenda, the longevity challenge. How to cope with the impact the ageing population will have on the global economy. Over the next 30 years, the number of people aged over 80 will triple to 420 million. So what will that mean for society and for the global economy? Here at the World Economic Forum Growth Summit 2023, I spoke to Christian Keller, Chief Economist of Barclays, Linda Gratton from the London Business School, Graham Pierce from Mercer, and Gog Sun Yu from SkillsFuture Singapore. Let's start off by a little bit of context, a little bit of scene setting, everyone. And I'll, I'll start with you, um, Christian, because there are so many uncertainties in 2023. We're still recovering from, from the pandemic. There are conflicts you know, from Ukraine to Sudan. We have a refugee crisis. We have a cost of living crisis. We have this crazy high inflation. Um, but there is one sure certainty, and that's that we're all going to live decades longer. So give us an overview of what that's going to mean for global growth in the near term. Well, okay, first of all, I think it's a, it's a very valid point you make. You know, we are in a time where we look a lot of the, of the crisis that hit us, right? And everything is unprecedented, unpredictable. And so we stumble from crisis to crisis. And we sometimes uh, lose sight of things that are actually quite predictable. And, you know, I mean, climate change is one, but more predictable in terms of knowing what we're going to see in the next decade is really demographics. And it's something that we like to talk about, but then whenever something happens, we say, well, we can push it off, right? And we are actually at the moment uh, at a pretty critical juncture. Our calculations are, for example, that the Chinese population actually next year may start already falling in absolute terms. We now, if you go to Europe, uh, Germany, for example, there's a now actually around this time now a kink where there are less and less people entering the labor market. Uh, we have obviously a lot going on in France where we see protests against, uh, um, uh, against increasing, um, you know, the, the lives or working lives. And, you know, it's something that is never relevant immediately in the short term because demographics does work over decades. But it's, you know, it's very dangerous to always pushing it off because there's always some crisis. And, and the fact that we have massive social unrest in France over, you know, increasing the retirement age by two years shows you what Europe in a way, has to look at as it needs to prepare its populations for, you know, that they're aging and maybe some of the generous pension schemes cannot be sustained. I know that a lot of analysts are looking at China and wonder whether they need to start correcting their forecasts for, you know, uh, some of the earnings forecasts for companies because, you know, population now is, the population is now in, in a very dramatic way, by the way. I, I don't think this is always recognized. In a very, very dramatic way, China's demographics going to change. That a population boom really in the early 60s and until the end 70s, when they started the one kid, uh, one, one, one child policy. So then they it dramatically changed, and now you have all these people retiring, which is a large group, but you have no one coming. So they are doing something now that the rest of the world will experience, but in a very drastic way. So let me make one more point. So longer term, growth will be affected. Because if you have less population growth, automatically your global GDP numbers will be less. GDP per capita can still be good. And second, and I stop with this, is 
we have amassed a lot of debt. So, you know, over the last 40 years, population stopped growing as quickly. But at the same time, over the last 40 years, we amassed a lot, a lot of debt. And that means that now a much smaller coming generation does not only have to pay for the elderly, but also deal with this debt burden that was amassed over the last 40 years. And that's true. There are fewer people in the workforce paying per retiree. Um, I wonder, that looking at this demographic um, transformation that's taking place, there are going to be some positives, there will be some negative impacts on the global um, workforce. Um, Linda, what do you think? It's actually China that is the next, the next country up, because, because these are demographic um, changes which will affect every single country. What does that mean? Well, I was fortunate because I talk about work and how it means to work, but my colleague, Andrew Scott, an economist, worked out how long you would have to work if you had the sort of savings that most of us have. And that figure is 72 years. And so actually one of the things I decided to do was to work till 72, and I'll tell you how that goes in a couple of (laughs) years' time. But then what happens is once you say, well, I'm going to work till 72, how do you feel about that? And of course, in Singapore, that's exactly what you're now talking to your citizens about. Everyone says, well, I can't possibly have the traditional full-time education, full-time work, full-time retirement, because you don't want to, you can't retire at at 60 and live to 90. Apart from the financial aspect of it, how does it feel just from a social relationship aspects. So then we began to talk about something that's become quite important, actually, the idea that you need a multi-stage life. You need a life where you move in and out of different types of work uh, at different stages, much more individualized. The three-stage life is very much around age cohorts. You know, if you knew somebody's age, you knew what stage of life they were at. But this is more individualized, and that means from a psychological perspective, People need more insight, and that's the work that you're doing in Singapore and we're doing in the UK, actually, to give people insight from about their 50s on about what sort of life would you like, you know, what would it look like, what would you want to do, how much do you save, how much do you want to give back to the community and so on. Let me just say a couple of points about that. What we found, and I'm a member of a research group in the, in the UK who are looking at this in detail, is that A, the over 50s did not come back to work after the pandemic. And that's incredibly worrying for all of us because once they don't come back at 50, they don't work. So we know now why they didn't come back. They came back, they didn't come back, and this is work from the Phoenix Institute of which I'm a member. Three reasons. Number one, they were ill. And that says something about the health system. And I know you you and I have just spoken about that in Singapore, which is very much more focused on health than it is on illness. Number two, they're looking after somebody. They're caring for somebody, which actually in some cases is is a grandchild. It's not always an, an aged parent. Number three, and this is particularly so in the UK, they don't like their job. So this really also plays into the whole issue that we've been focusing on the WEF on, which is good work. One more thing to say, though, about that group. Let's say you did, let's say at 50, you wanted to find a new job. So you applied for a job, you know, pretty well qualified. What then happens in that process? Well, what we know happens is that you are discriminated against. We have absolute data on this. Uh, that, That, in fact, I have said publicly before, I'll say it again, that age discrimination is worse, in my view, and I speak as a woman, 
than gender discrimination. Horrible stereotypes about what 50-year-olds are like and what 60-year-olds are like and what 70-year-olds are like. So, so my, the point I would like to make in this panel today is this is a multi-stakeholder issue. You know, governments have to move, yeah. uh, individuals have to move, but importantly, corporations have to move. And there are not enough of you. In fact, there are very few of you who are actively trying to retain and to bring in the over 50s. So my plea to you is if we want to get over this enormous crisis which we've described, you have got to start employing, actively employing people over the age of 50. I want to talk about the, the, the corporate side of things in a moment, but uh, you, 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 were, you were bringing in Sunju, so I want to, to talk to you, because it, there are different approaches, aren't there, from, from country to country, from region to region. Um, so tell us about what is happening um, in Singapore and the measures that are being put in place to, to address the ageing population. Sure, yes, I, I, we, we are uh, very cognizant of the ageing populations, and we're taking really uh, important steps. So I just highlight three key points. Redefining healthcare, uh, not to treat people when they're sick, but now we are moving into healthier SG. Healthier Singapore means we have to take care of our health ahead of time, and, and that means we have we not just have long lifespans, but long and healthy lifespans. I think that about the total wellness. So focusing a lot on shifting to, from sick care to healthcare, real healthcare and well-being. So that's number one, redefining healthcare. Number two is about redefining lifelong learning. So we, we invest in our people uh, in giving everybody $500 skillfuture credit from 25 and above. So as long as you're alive, you have the credits. <laughs> from time to time, we see the consumption, we may top up again. I think that allowed people to take charge of how they want to see learning, how they want to re readjust the kind of a job role they are in into something else. So the kind of adjacency, how they move across. So the lifelong learning will allow them to move um, in tender of their life stages in terms of career. I think the third part of um, readjustment, I would say, is about redesigning workplaces to help people stay longer. So we have uh, some success story among uh, Singapore companies like our Sets Kitchen, which is the, the catering kitchens in the Changi Airport. They redesigned the whole workplace so that their 70-year-old can continue to stay in the job. When, instead of asking them to carry heavy crates of potato, there's a robot that follows them. So the robots will carry the potato to the right place and then unload it and they can, they can continue to do the work. So the companies are adapting their, their workforces to, to accommodate the, the older population. But I wonder if it's sort of feeling as they go or whether it's something that's now becoming more ingrained in the way um, they do business. Um, and Graham, let's bring you in. I mean, are companies listening? I mean, have retirement systems and setups and pensions uh, changed in line with this demographic transformation? Not yet, is what I would say. So if we went back a few decades, we had, in the developed world at least, a predominance of defined benefit pension plans. And what I mean by that is that people were promised a, given, a set amount of retirement income, usually linked to salary, that gave them an adequate retirement income after a full career. Gradually, due to more tight funding <coughs> regulations, uh, which created more cash volatility for sponsoring employers, and also accounting standards that required those assets and liabilities to be marked to market at, at regular intervals, that caused tremendous volatility of financing of those plans and has pushed virtually all companies in the private sector towards what we call defined contribution plans, which is where you pay a set amount of contribution 
into a pension plan each year, and then the individual typically is responsible for managing that and choosing how it's invested, and ultimately the benefits that will be provided are just what that pot of money provides when you need to take it. So you've moved away from this, what's almost like an insurance of an adequate retirement income, into something where your retirement income is just going to depend upon how much you've saved up and the financial conditions at the point at which you retire. So there's a lot more volatility in that. Much more recently, we've seen some of the more progressive companies starting to think about introducing minimum standards. So looking at, we've seen the talking about living wage and looking at how much you actually need to earn in order to be able to live, you know, basic, to provide basic level of income to, to live adequately, or you could set that at a different level to maybe allow you you know, more freedoms, the ability to eat out, the ability to go on holidays, for example. So you can, companies will look at the different levels of income needed and try to target a living wage. Some companies are now looking at living pensions as being a target. That, I think, at the moment at least, is proving challenging because the one thing that everybody underestimates is the cost of providing an adequate retirement income. And if you think about what we've just discussed here, if you're going to work for 35 years, say, or 40 years and be in retirement for 35 or 40 years, and you earn on your investments, you keep up, manage to keep your investments up with real salary growth, you know, if you're paying in for the same amount of time as you're going to be taking money out, actually, if you pay 5% of your salary into a pension, you can expect to get a retirement pension of 5% of your final salary, which is probably a lot lower than what people think they're going to get from that money. And, and that's a ticking time bomb, when we talked about time bombs before, that I think is yet to be addressed. So, and there's a resistance, isn't there, in many places, to having to work longer, even though, because we're living longer, we might be living healthier lives with companies and governments focusing more on well-being, that might make us feel we need to work. But if we see what's happening in France, I mean, <laughs> great example, um, they want to nudge up the retirement age um, from, from 62 to 64, and the workforce aren't having any of it. Something I looked up because uh, on the question on France is it's just, you know, unless you just realize, uh, life expectancy this is a global number, imagine, this is a number that includes developing countries and everyone. Life expectancy, according to the UN, at the age, uh, at the um, 1950, was 46 years average. 2022, 71. So now over, the, over that time span, it was 70 years, you know, we, we increased uh, it from 46 to 71 and at the same time, you know, the the retirement age has almost barely moved, and now we are fighting over two years. And now, look, I don't want to get into the, the nitty-gritty and whether the way Macron did it, you know, this is not the, the subject here. But the fact is, and in particular in Europe, and in particular, I think, in, in older societies, that includes probably Japan, there needs to be a social dialogue. You know, if we continue by governments just trying each year to do something about lifting the age or so, and then the entire... Uh, you know, working, not entire work population, but those who are, you know, uh, unionized, etc., just fighting against, you know, that won't work, right? I think that really needs to be an engagement where one rethinks how one thinks about this. Maybe work patterns need to change. Lifelong learning may be also that people, you know, they maybe cannot be expected to do the same job when they get older, even if they are healthy. But maybe we need to think of that careers peak, but then there's nothing you know, dishonor about it to continue to working but no longer in that top job. Still to come here on the agenda, 
more on the longevity challenge, what businesses are doing to embrace an older workforce. Welcome back to the Agenda in Geneva, and we can return to our panel looking at the global economic cost of an ageing population. So, you know, Graham, we, we're, looking, we're talking here about how important it is to, to adapt policies and rewrite the system. All of this makes sense on paper. So how do you then get that everyone mobilised to do something about it rather than just talk about the problem? I think at the end of the day, whether you talk about governments or whether you talk about private corporations, it's all about the business case. So companies are going to do this. They're going to invest in keeping workers productive for longer if they can see a return on it. And maybe for exactly the reasons that Christian's just outlined about the fact that in so many countries we're going to see far fewer people entering the workforce in the next few years, maybe that will provide the drive for companies to actually invest much more heavily and really make a difference in actually keeping people for longer and making sure that the jobs can be adapted to suit what people aged over 50 are looking for. Because as you said, Linda, too many people are leaving the workforce because they actually don't feel that they can cope well in the environment that they find themselves in. There have been some pilot schemes, though, haven't there? I mean, Linda, maybe you can talk us through some of these with some companies that, that are not sitting still, that, that are, uh, are changing the factory most, floor. Most companies are sitting still. I mean, honestly, it was interesting. I talked to a very, very smart CHRO this morning who said to me, uh, you know, it's very obvious, Linda, that within the next five years, we will have a major skill shortage in, the U in the Europe. And I said, have you thought about the over 50s? He said, no. Well, well, okay, no, which, companies, he... which companies but, are focusing on the over 50s? Uh, have you got some examples in, in Singapore? Have we got some examples? In well, the... I mean, I, you know, I could give you examples, and, and they're, they're the same old examples. You know, BMW have, have changed their factory so that it can accommodate people over the age of 50. Um, quite a lot of retailers, actually, are beginning to work with the over 50s because, I mean, clearly, when everyone ages, your consumers age. And consumers would like, you know, if you w walk into a B&Q store, which is one of the uh, sort of stores in, in, in Europe, which sells, um, you know, D DIY stuff, you you'd like, to, potentially, to have somebody of your own age giving you advice. So, so retail has been pretty good, actually. Uh, manufacturing has been pretty good. Uh, professional service firms have done very little, I think, although they are saying they are. I, I really am being honest here because I'm a, I'm a academic, so it's easy for me to say what I see, really. And what I observe is, frankly, we're just not doing enough. We're not, we're not doing enough. And we need to do what Singapore... Governments need to do what Singapore has done, and companies need to completely re-evaluate their whole talent pipeline and ask themselves, are we discriminating against people over the age of 50? It may be, actually, by the way, that governments move on this. Governments might decide that discrimination against age is as, uh, is as um, you know, bad as discrimination against gender, in which case there'll be a whole slew of regulations which companies will have to start thinking about. I I'm not sure if it will get to that, but I wouldn't be surprised. So there's a lot to be done. This is just the beginning of this conversation. Do you think that your global economic outlook might change if there were some uh, big strides made you know, from government, from industry, from academia to, to come up with a, a gear shift, a joined-up framework here? 
I think the immediate change would take place really through labor markets. You mentioned it. You know, right now, what we all economists are stunned about, and which has a big impact on inflation, by the way, because the wages are driven up by not enough supply. And there are many people who could be working and they're not working, and we need to find out why. If they enter the labor force, you have more labor working, probably on average at less wages, which sounds bad, but it's actually not a bad thing because if more people working, you know, the, the, the wage bill overall goes up, but you don't have the inflation pressure. That would have an impact on the, on the outlook, even in the short term, if it was to happen over the short term, yeah. One of the reasons that Linda mentioned was why was because some people might be caring for others younger or older, which makes me think about healthcare systems. They need to shake up too. Interestingly enough, one of the recommendations that the Arbe report on the 100-year life came up with was childcare. You know, and you'd think, well, what's childcare got to do with a 100-year life? Well, it was to do, it was, it was actually to take caring responsibilities from women because they want, in Japan, they wanted to get women into the workforce, which they've pretty much done, actually. But, but you're right. I mean, actually, it's a, it's a complex set of issues. Can I just mention one other point which we haven't talked about yet, and it's really fundamental, which is one of the reasons why it's difficult to say that the pension age should be 67, let's say, or 68, is that as people age, the variance within the age cohort increases. So, you know, a 60-year-old, the variance within 60-year-olds is very, very wide. And as they age, it gets wider and wider and wider. And that's why it's so difficult to make one judgment about you know, a 67-year-old, because you could be a 67-year-old running a marathon, or you could be a 67-year-old who's struggling to stand up. And that's why, you know, it's so hard for a government to say it should all be 67. And so pensions, and this is the complexity of pensions, really, has to somehow acknowledge that there will be, within any society, a, you know, a number of 67-year-olds who actually can't work. There's not one size fits all. That's certainly what I'm getting here. So I, I just wonder, in terms of what you'd like to see, in, in terms of public policy, in terms of um, what policymakers can do to address all of these changes that, that are happening in society, in the workforce, and, and in the makeup of the population. Yeah, in Singapore, we, we already implemented the re-employment scheme, whereby when individual reach so-called the pseudo-retirement age, there will be companies are obliged to issue contracts on an annual basis and the job can be redesigned to something else. You need not go back to the same jobs. So that allowed the flexibility on both ends, the employees and the employer to decide what is the best deal for both. I think this should continue, definitely, for sure. Uh, in terms of the um, uh, ageism, so-called the ageism, I, I would think that Perhaps sometime this ageism concept is a, is a kind of convenient excuse because it will take a lot more efforts for line manager and HR, um, human resource manager, to rethink how to take advantage of this demographic uh, premium. I call it premium, it's not a tsunami, that demographic premium, because they are experienced, they have a deep knowledge. But how do we take advantage of this? demographic premium and to rethink how can I design work take, take advantage it can be oh, I don't need you to drive the trucks but can I get you to train someone else do something because you have the in-depth knowledge I absolutely agree as I say it's all about trying to keep people productive for longer that will produce a greater amount of income for the economies 
that we're representing here. And what we need to also do is realise that we can't carry on with this idea of a fixed retirement age and, and a retirement income from that point to expect to have enough for everybody at that point onwards that we have to recognise the diversity, we have to recognise that there will be some people forced to retire much earlier due to ill health or due to the nature of their job or a combination of them both. Uh, that will need support earlier and there'll be some people who can actually afford to provide for themselves for much longer and save up and, and may need a lot less assistance. Thank you to everybody um, who's taken part and thank you very much to our panel. So much to talk about. Yeah. I think these conversations are going to um, disappear into the corridors of power and we'll be continuing this um, for much longer. Thank you. Christian, thank Graham, you. Linda and Sungu, thank, thank, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Coming up soon on the agenda, the gender gap, why prospects for men and women appear to be further apart than ever. But for now, from me, Juliet Mann, and from all the agenda team here in Geneva, goodbye.